0: Hello and welcome to Ready, Set, Retire, an audio guide packed with information to help you achieve a successful retirement. I'm your co-host, John McComb, recently retired from an award-winning 50-year broadcast career with more than 35 of those years at Vancouver News and Talk Powerhouse CKNW. I'm here with my co-host Lori Pinkowski, a retirement expert and investment manager who advises people on how to plan for and live out their ultimate retirement. Lori is an award-winning and highly respected portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. She has been providing quality investment advice to her clients for over 20 years and educating the community on her weekly CKNW radio show for the last 12 years. After a decade of being on CKNW Radio together and over 500 shows together, Lori and her team helped me transition into retirement. Together, Lori and I are sitting down every other Saturday to talk about everything from financial and estate planning to travel, hobbies, and health matters, and so much more. Whether you're thinking about retirement or already living your retirement dreams, Ready, Set, Retire is for you.
1: Exactly, John. I'm so excited to be able to really share our insight with people who are planning to retire or those who are already retired. I've been helping retirees for over 20 years, so I have a lot of valuable advice for them. And I look forward to having guests on the show as well and honing in on some of those areas that people really worry about as they enter into that new stage of life, but that exciting stage of life, John.
0: Now, on today's show, we're going to talk about estate planning. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be uh, on some occasions. But we have a guest joining us today who's going to explain it all and really break it down and make it uh, quite simple for us. Her name is Rose Shawley. She is a lawyer with Harper Gray LLP and brings more than a decade of experience to her practice, which is primarily focused on assisting families and businesses with their planning, succession, estate, and business needs. She strives to make life's inevitabilities, death and taxes, less daunting a topic for clients while being alert to the complications these raise from a legal family tax probate fee and cost perspective. Death and taxes, Lori.
1: Death and taxes, two things that are guaranteed in life, as they say. Well, Rose can help uh, with one of those for sure. Uh, You know, I've had uh, the pleasure of working uh, with you, Rose, on many occasions and helping our clients get organized with their estate planning. And today I wanted to talk about the transition of wealth and how people can best plan for the unexpected, you know, and I think that's what you do so well day in, day out. Ensuring that people have their I's dotted and T's crossed so when they do leave this earth that that transition of wealth continues on. And so I want to start with some easy questions about estate planning. Because I do get these questions. And the first one is, why is having a will so important? I love that question. And I think it all comes down to collaboration,
2: whether it's the lawyer and the financial advisor working together, or the lawyer and the clients, or the lawyer and the insurance broker, or the clients and their next generations. These really aren't things that can be siloed if there's going to be a successful transition that doesn't create extra havoc for the surviving family because i tend to be coming at it from a legal perspective i'm a bit neurotic and a bit type a so the thing that makes having a will most attractive for me is the sense of control the idea that i might pass away and have no say in how my assets are distributed or how my values are maintained is really unnerving so the act of creating a will creates some parameters and guideposts for the next generation and my family and those organizations who might be important to me on what the legacy was I was hoping to achieve and any protections I might wish to make for them. One of the things that's a bit deceptive in the general understanding of what happens if I don't have a will is that everything goes to my spouse. Unfortunately, that's a big fallacy. What actually happens is they get a certain amount off the top and how much that amount is depends on whether all of my children are also my spouse's children. So if I've got a child with my surviving spouse, but I also have children from a prior relationship, that changes the amount that goes to my spouse. And we might not think this is necessarily a really big consequence because intuitively that actually recognizes the modern blended family, but it can also mean that all of a sudden, my spouse doesn't get to stay in the home because the amount that they're going to receive is not equal to the value of that home. And I don't think that's quite as pressing a concern outside the metro area, but when we look at the cost of all kinds of residents, whether it's a condo or a large family property, that is a big amount that our surviving spouse might not be able to service. So that really does take care of that problem and make sure that our family can continue to live with the quality and accoutrements that we created during our shared lifetime. One of the other things that's really important and is often overlooked is the role of minors. Even though federally the age of majority is 18, in BC it's 19. And if I pass away without a will, what's going to happen is if my little kiddos are, let's say, 16 and 2, the public guardian and trustee is going to step in and take conduct of the inheritance for them. I probably didn't envision that the government would be running the inheritance for my kids. And as with so many other aspects of government, they're overworked and under-resourced, so this isn't going to be something that has individualized attention day to day. It probably serves my kids much better to make sure that I've got people managing that trust with a view to their particular strengths, the challenges that those children will face, and the opportunities that are going to come across their path. A bit of a spinoff related to that that I find quite interesting, and this is probably my inner legal dork showing through a little bit, is that if we leave things without a will and we're what we call in an intestacy, my kiddos now turn 19, well what if I had that really great piece of Vancouver real estate that I've had for 25 years and that means that at 19 they're getting $6 million. I may just have been a particularly misguided youth, but i can assure you i should not have had six million dollars without any fences at 19. <laughs> so creating a will will allow you to have some parameters around that as to what ages are appropriate what kind of expenditures you'd like to see prioritized commonly we see things like education and down payments And there's also some tax planning that can be done in this. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this simply because I know when I drone on about taxes, it's the equivalent of a sleeping pill. But for those people who do have a bit of a tax focus on it, whether it's because you've got private company shares that you want to distribute in a tax efficient way and take advantage of some of the tax on split income rules, or you just really want to be able to distribute things over multiple generations without running into lots of capital gains, there's measures that you can take as part of a will plan that you just simply can't tap into the same way if you're dealing in a will vacuum.
1: Definitely lots of good points there on why one should create a will. I mean, I'm always having that conversation with clients. It's not good enough to write your will on a napkin. It is important (laughs) to get legal advice, especially with blended families. And of course, you know, if you're looking at families with high net worth and just transitioning that wealth to children and grandchildren and ensuring that you have that properly protected, which we'll talk a little bit later on as well. a question that I also get, Rose, is who should you choose as your executor and what are their duties? I find that a lot of clients (laughs) want to have all of their children be executors, and I'm telling them it's not a gift to be an executor. (laughs) <laughs> so so pick somebody that is good and pick someone that is close and someone that can understand maybe some of your finances. Maybe you have some more insight on choosing an executor. That would be helpful.
2: Well, you summed it up beautifully, but since you've given me the floor, I'll drone on for a bit. The <laughs> function is fairly straightforward. It's the management of the legal and financial components of the estate itself. And one of the things that that flows from that is the time involved. There's this bizarre belief that probate just happens quickly. And I would love to live up to that expectation, but I'm here to dash everybody's dreams and let you know, in B.C., the average estate runs two to three years soup to nuts. And that's partly the legal system's fault. I'd love to shy away from that as well, but we should own that. And it's partly tied to the timelines connected with the tax filings that are attendant on an estate. So when you're thinking of who your executor is, you really want someone who in the ordinary course is going to be alive and capable, not just until you pass away, but until at least three years after that, if you're setting up trusts in your will, so we've decided, pretty solidly that my 19-year-old should not be running around with six million bucks, so we set it up in a trust until he or she is 35. I need that person to be in a position to administer it until that child has reached 35. So when thinking about who's going to be in those key roles, timelines are critical. The other part that's really interesting is considering geography. Most organizations, whether they're realtors or lawyers, financial institutions have rules about identifying our client, commonly called know your client rules. And these are to protect us. And there's a great deal of logic in that because we don't want people absconding with our life savings. But if I want to appoint my child who lives in Spain or Gonda, I'm hooped because their ability to get in front of those people and verify their identity is logistically complicated. So geographical proximity really does make their life easier. Another thing to factor in, and unfortunately, one of the themes that will emerge as I pick on our friends to the South here, if you happen to be one of our friends from the South, please know that we love you. We're just not huge fans of your tax system. If an American is appointed as an executor, it creates an additional level of compliance. With compliance comes additional time and cost. And one of the things that's particularly onerous about the U.S. tax regime is that compliance yeah there's some extra time there's some extra cost but what's genuinely beastly are the penalties and interest for non-compliance and it gets a little bit complicated when you're trying to spot americans it's kind of the 21st century version of where's waldo you ask someone if they're an american and they say no and my general advice is ask them again (laughs) it's really easy to be accidentally captured and it could be that you were born in the u.s and you moved to canada And it's entirely possible that at the time you moved to Canada, the U.S. had a policy that didn't allow dual citizenship, so you completely legitimately believed you no longer had a U.S. connection. It could be that you had a green card that expired. Expiration typically ends your obligations as far as work and other attendant matters you might have had with your employer and it ends the US obligations to you, but it doesn't actually end your tax obligations. There is a formal surrender process. So for those people who formally surrendered their green card, they're generally tickety-boo, which of course is the technical legal term, but on a more practical level, it's really easy to be what I tend to refer to as an accidental American and perhaps the most insidious is I have a parent who was born in the U.S., and they moved here when they were 22. And I may not know it, but I might be American. I've never triggered my citizenship. I've never taken out a social security number. And now my friend has appointed me as an executor in her will. Little does she know that not only am I an American with potential complications, but I've now downloaded some of those complications onto her estate. So Americans, while they seem like a really easy question, there are layers to it. And it's a good conversation people should have with whoever they're considering.
0: Let's talk about uh, powers of attorney. Tell me about what the power of attorney means and just how much power the person who is, uh, is named has over your financial matters and over uh, any health matters.
2: Powers of attorney are perhaps the most important document in the planning regime in BC. And the reason they're so critical is that it doesn't default to my next of kin. If I lose my marbles and juries out whether that ship has sailed, it's not my spouse who can deal with my banking or sell my real estate. And what gets particularly misleading is, let's say I've got my house registered jointly with my spouse, If I don't have a power of attorney, that joint registration isn't going to allow my spouse to sell the property. It's not going to allow my spouse to refinance it when it comes due. My power of attorney is the mechanism for that. And in the absence of it, somebody has to go to the court and request that someone be appointed to handle my affairs. And that's called a ship order. The powers that can be granted run an entire spectrum. And how broad they should be really depend on each individual's circumstances and to some extent how trustworthy the person being appointed is. Now, I'll give you the standard puffy statement that you shouldn't appoint someone you don't trust in this role. Y'all think? These are big financial decisions. This is not rocket science. But it's a really big demand. Not everybody has someone in their life who really is sufficiently trustworthy. And trustworthiness is a bit of a slippery concept because sometimes we trust people as far as moral and ethical character, but they could not balance a checkbook to save their souls. They are dreck with record keeping and all kinds of things will slip through the cracks because of that. So how you gauge that really is gonna depend on the people someone is considering appointing in this pivotal role. One of the corollaries to that, because we don't like to make anything too simple in the legal world, is that you also need to consider some of the same factors that you would consider in selecting an executor. Again, poor Americans get picked on and appointing them in these roles creates some additional complications. But just as importantly, we need to consider the longevity of the person we're appointing. If I want to appoint a parent as my attorney, In the ordinary course, they're not gonna be alive and capable to administer this if I'm incapable. And that's not to say that they shouldn't be appointed. They may be the person who is most trusted, but it means it's important to have an alternate if they can't act in that role. One of the things that's a really excellent tool and that there's often trepidation in exploring is the use of a professional trust company. My personal take, and it's really important to be clear that this is my personal belief, this is not a strong legal principle by any stretch, is that it is much more advantageous to appoint a professional trust company than a professional advisor and appoint them to be in that role. So if I'm someone's lawyer and a client asks me, Can they appoint me as their executor? My typical response is no, I'm not regulated for that. I don't have special insurance for that. Trust companies have that. So you're actually going to be getting the best service from someone whose sole job is to do this. And the reason there's so much trepidation in hiring trust companies is that they're going to charge for these services. But I think that trepidation is often misplaced because it's not generally well known that any person who acts as an executor can charge those fees for acting. And if you're appointing them as an attorney under a power of attorney, If I were to appoint a human, they can't typically charge. So it's a bit different than the executor role, but you're not generally going to be double billed for services if they act as your attorney and your executor. So you'll have people delivering quality services who are regulated, who are insured and who are highly skilled in this and whose only interest is to look out for your well-being. And that's a pretty great protection to have in place.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of people that don't have adult children that are capable or in the vicinity to act as an executor. Sometimes you need a trustee or so on. And trust companies uh, do come in handy in those situations for sure. And uh, independent trust companies, especially. There's a lot of kind of bank trust companies, again, that sometimes are more costly, but there's some independent names out there that you should also check out. uh, would be my recommendation as well. They're just more flexibility in terms of your investments later on instead of being forced to have their own investments. And so, again, I think that's really important to touch on as well. So, again, if you don't have... Uh, someone that, um, you know, can take those roles that Rose is discussing, there are trust companies out there that can help you.
2: You're completely right, Lori, and it ties into the initial question, and of course they've taken us on a meandering path to get there, but what powers are you going to grant these people? If I'm going to grant my siblings or my kids the power to make gifts, for example, from my assets, that can create family dynamic issues. Let's say I've got three kids and I name one of my kids as the power of attorney. And I say that that child has the ability to use my assets to make gifts and they only make gifts to their own kids and they don't do it to my other grandchildren. We can see all kinds of backlash and family disharmony directly resulting from that. So there there can be some very practical reasons to appoint trust companies. They avoid not only actual mismanagement, but sometimes, just as importantly, the perception of mismanagement. When you're selecting the powers that you're going to confer, because it is a spectrum, there's the really standard form power of attorney. And that basically covers what the legislation defines as financial affairs, banking, paying my taxes, paying my bills, buying and selling my property. Some of the key things that it doesn't capture are making gifts or loans of my assets restructuring and reorganizing my companies, setting up and transferring assets to trusts. All of these things become really important if I either have business interests or I have assets that are used by anybody else but that aren't in shared names. And a really common example is I have kids but they're not minors. Let's say I've got a 25 and a 30 year old. And as part of my general investment portfolio, I figured, let's get in on the real estate game. So I bought two condos. They each live in one while they're going to college. Well, that's great. But if my power of attorney is silent, they actually have a technical problem continuing to live there if I become incapable because my power of attorney doesn't allow that. The default would be that they now have to start paying market rent. And again, I may be being too hard on my personal history, but I wasn't making a whole heck of a lot of money at 27. Paying market rent would have been really complicated in a big city. It also becomes a really considerable issue when we look at RIF withdrawals or private company dividends these tend to flow just to one person's name, but are really commonly used for shared household expenses. So I get my company's dividend or I take my RIF amount out, but we use it to pay our property taxes or grocery shopping or shared holidays. My power of attorney actually needs to be able to continue those processes. So at one end, we have the standard form power of attorney, but for most scenarios, it doesn't capture what most people actually need. And we need to get into the details to give them the powers that are suitable to how they run their life.
0: Let's, uh, Rose, talk a little bit about the health directive, because the power of attorney, uh, as I understand it, doesn't cover matters of uh, health. So what is a health directive? What is it for? And if you're married, do you really need one?
2: When it comes to healthcare, we've got a bit of a complicated regime here, mostly because our terminology doesn't necessarily synchronize with what's used in the rest of the country. There's three key concepts I would say here. One is the representation agreement, and that's the one that most people think of conceptually but don't necessarily have the right terminology at hand. It's the equivalent of a power of attorney for health and personal care, and you're absolutely right, John, that a power of attorney does not extend to health and personal care. For those who are listening who did a power of attorney and were told at the time it applied to health and personal care, you weren't being led down the garden path. Representation agreements are not particularly old documents and for a very long time a power of attorney did cover everything. Unfortunately, if you did your power of attorney at a time when it applied to health care, it is not grandfathered and you have a bit of a gap in the planning. The representation agreement appoints someone to make my health care and personal care decisions if I'm not able to do so and it will typically appoint a backup as well you do really need one, even if it is your spouse. We have the default legislation with the not so pithy name of the Healthcare Consent and Care Facility Admission Act. Apparently we get paid by the word, not just by the hour in our industry. What this very bizarre piece of legislation does is it says that in an emergency, basically, a temporary substitute decision maker is appointed and they can make those decisions. There's a number of complications that arise. First is that it does, in fact, go to my spouse. But who's my spouse? That is often a very live issue. And if I happen to have led a particularly colorful lifestyle where I'm cohabiting with someone and married to someone else, it's extremely common for there to be on the ground disputes about who has status. It's not in my best interest to have that as a battle being fought out while I am stuck there eating some questionable jello. I really want somebody to be able to act quickly and with clarity as to who has authority. The other reason it's so important not to hang our hats on that default legislation is that while, there is a hierarchy, and the the first two are my spouse and alternatively my children. Within that second category, there's no prioritization giving. Uh, authority to my oldest child first or my youngest child first all of them are on equal footing and not all of my kids will always share the same views as i do sometimes there's a religious disconnect sometimes there's experiences with the healthcare system that inform the decisions we might want made but ultimately it's extremely easy for conflict to arise if in a time of crisis whether it's having to move me into long-term care or an end-of-life decision to grapple with those decisions so having the representation agreement is quite handy and that's typically the most robust document there's two other concepts that are commonly discussed in bc the first is what we call the advanced directive and the second is what we refer to as a living will Living will is a really commonly thrown around term, and I think we mostly get it from U.S. TV. Life is not as exciting as they make it. And a living will is not a legally binding document. To your point earlier, it's kind of like writing it on a cocktail napkin. So I certainly wouldn't suggest spending big bucks on it because you're not going to get a lot of return on value. An advanced directive is just a unilateral statement of my health care wishes, and there are circumstances where it does suit people's needs very well. But by and large, because it doesn't appoint someone who has the right to advocate on your behalf, it's rarely as powerful and flexible as having that representation agreement where someone is actually being given that decision-making power. And that is the
1: snapshot of healthcare decisions in BC in the event of incapability. All super important information, the power of attorney, health directives, making sure your will is updated. And, and so I just also want to touch on the process. So Every time a client comes on board with us, I always ask, do you have an updated will? Some people say yes. Some people say no. Some people say, I don't know. <laughs> Or or I haven't seen it in 20 years. I'm not sure. So I often say, you know, most couples are not sitting around the dinner table talking about death. And so it's important to get in front of a lawyer and really put the stuff on paper and make sure that your wishes are heard and make sure that it is uh, taken care of and organized, as I said earlier. So maybe you could just touch on quickly just what the process is for clients when they first meet a lawyer to review their will and to talk about updating it and changing it.
2: I love that question because it's a really invasive process, so being prepared for that takes some of the horror out of it. It's very much like talking to your doctor or your religious advisor. We're going to ask you everything. We want to know about your divorces, your separations, property divisions, assets, religious preferences. All of those factor into creating a successful plan. And if you're not comfortable sharing that with someone, they're not the right advisor and you need to find someone you are comfortable with. Doing this kind of planning in a piecemeal way typically ends up in overlap, which means things can end up in conflict and don't work, or you can end up with big gaping holes where you're just left unprotected. So I think if people really wanna be prepared for the process, reach out to someone have the preliminary conversation with them these days, often by virtual meeting or phone rather than in person. And just really make sure you're comfortable sharing that scope of information and know that when the lawyer is asking for it, it's not just for their own amusement. They do want to be respectful of your circumstances and we really want to create plans that actually work for people, not just on paper.
1: It it is interesting. People want to know this stuff, Rose. And so uh, you picked a great career. And when you're thinking about as baby boomers age and the population going through all these changes, this is their top concern, I'd say, out there to make making sure that the family stays happy and more money stays in the family pot than going to CRA. So thank you for what you do.
2: Wow. I don't get that a whole heck of a lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm so grateful that all of us are still awake because I know how riveting death and taxes are.
1: <laughs> I only speak the truth. So there you
0: go. Rose, thank you so much again. Rose Shawley is a lawyer with Harper Gray LLP. You can reach her for even more information at rsholly, that's S-H-A-W-L-E-E, at harpergray.com. And thank you for joining us here on Ready, Set, Retire. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday. We'll be talking about everything from financial and estate planning to travel and hobbies and health matters. Whether you're thinking about your retirement or already living your retirement dreams, Ready, Set, Retire is for you. If you're interested in learning more or have any questions, please don't hesitate to call Lori and her team at Pinkowski Wealth Management. 604-695-LORI. 604-695-5674. For Lori Pinkowski, I'm John McComb, and thanks for listening. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of Ready, Set, Retire.